All right, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. Uh, this morning, we're going to be resuming our series on 1 Peter entitled Elect Exiles. And our passage this morning is 1 Peter 3, 8 to 12. You can find that in your bulletin, the Pew Bible in front of you on page 1015. Uh, or you can find that, did I say in your bulletin? Yeah, you can find that in your bulletin as well. Uh, the title this morning is Embracing a Life of Love and Holiness. So if you're able, please stand now for the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter 3, 8 to 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For, those, for to this you were called that you may be, obtain a blessing. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Please join me as I pray for us. Father, I pray that as we encounter you in your word this morning, that your spirit would speak to us through your word. Apart from your spirit's work, we are deaf, but by the power of your spirit, we can hear and be changed. And Father, I pray that through the preaching of your word this morning, that you would shape us into a people that are more and more characterized by love, a community where we find rest and rejuvenation, a a community that then overflows in love and affection and blessing to the world we are called to reach. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We are shaped by those that are around us. Over the last couple of weeks, I had all of my immediate family in town, which is quite unusual for me. So my mom and dad were in town. Both of my brothers were in town. Their spouses were in town. All at various times for various reasons in a space of about 10 days. And each time I'm with them, I'm struck by this fact that I'm 20 years removed from living with my family. And yet, when I am with them, I, I recognize just how much I've been shaped by them. My, my mannerisms, my turn of phrase, the shared memories that we have, how we view the world, how we think about things around us. I've been shaped by my family, even 20 years after moving away. Our families shape us. Our friend groups shape us. Co-workers, neighbors, classmates, time and proximity, the people that we are with and the people that we are with a lot, they shape who we are and how we think about the world. Think about this. Think about your friends, those closest to you, how often you share interests with them. The food and the drinks that you like, the books that you read, the hobbies that you pursue, your attitudes, the politics that you embrace. So often those that are around us shape us, who we are, what we believe, how we act, and what we enjoy. Virtually every aspect of our lives is shaped by those around us. None of us are an island, each and every one of us relating to those around us, shaped by them. These relational networks, they can also function as a place of refuge or rest. Friends, family, a small group, people that you spend your time with, these are people that you know and that they know you and they love you and they're close to you and you can go to them and share the trials, the difficulties, the challenges of life. And in that context, it's a place of refuge, of friendship, where you build relationships with those closest to you. In our passage this morning, it highlights the role of the church as just such a place. 
where we are the people of God who are to love one another as God has loved us. And as we are shaped as disciples, living life together and loving one another, we then have the abundance of God's love that's been poured into our hearts that we share with one another. We then go out into the world and bless the world with that same love. God intends for the church to be a primary context where we are shaped as disciples by proximity with one another and that we are shaped in the love of Christ that we then give to the world. This passage, it points to the qualities of a Christian community that will shape us and ultimately sustain us as we seek to bring the hope of the gospel to a world that is often hostile towards us. Main point this morning is this, God intends for the world to be blessed out of the abundance of the loving community of our church. God intends for the world to be blessed out of the abundance of the loving community of the church. First point this morning is this, a culture of love. Look with me again at verse 8, a culture of love. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, in this verse is what we have. We have what's called a chiasm. I thought this was a term that everyone knew. I was corrected by Derek and Andy Bullock. They're like, I've never heard of that. That's strange. So I'll explain this to you, what a chiasm is. So uh, I learned this in high school English class when looking at poetry. So this idea of A moving to B, moving to C, and then B prime, A prime. And so A is held in parallel. They explain each other. B is held in parallel, they explain each other, and both of these are building towards the crux of the chiasm, which is the main point, which is number C, or letter C, excuse me. So the parallels that we have here are unity of mind and humble mind, they're held in parallel. And then we have sympathy and a tender heart, they're held in parallel, with brotherly love as the center of that chiasm, building towards this high point. And so the brotherly love that's talked about here, it's it's what it sounds like, the love of a family, brothers and sisters in Christ who love one another unconditionally through thick and thin, that will never abandon one another, loving each other as the family of God, unconditionally, deeply, no matter the circumstance. Now, in every church community, just like a family, there are differences. There are offenses, there are irritations, there are people that sometimes we don't even like all that much, although we love them as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's impossible to throw together a bunch of people with their own sinful tendencies and not have these clashes of sin one with another. But at the end of the day, what Peter is pointing at is that even when we have these differences, even when we disagree and there are challenges... What God calls us to is a brotherly and sisterly love, a familial love that no matter what, we will love one another. No matter how difficult, no matter how, how irritating others may be in our families and in our church families. This is what we are called to. We are called to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers and sisters, by the way, with whom we will spend eternity. Peter uses this chiasm to sketch for us this, the characteristics of this loving community. In the first parallel, it describes a loving community as a community that has unity of mind and a humble mind. Unity of mind and a humble mind. Now, having unity of mind, it requires a, a couple of things. It requires some sense of a transcendent truth that unites us, that gives us unity of mind. And it also requires a humility and affection towards one another. So this transcendent truth that unites us, it's the gospel that 
saves us and adds us to the family of God. So first and foremost, despite all of our differences, all of our different backgrounds and preferences, thoughts and feelings about any number of things, the one thing that unites us is our belief in the gospel, which makes us children of God chosen by God. Each week we recite the Apostles' Creed. We're going to recite it here in a few minutes. And the reason why we recite this Apostles' Creed is to remind us of what unites us. Christians throughout the entire world today will be reciting the Apostles' Creed in any number of languages. Christians throughout the last 2,000 years of church history have been reciting the Apostles' Creed because it points to what unites us as God's people, a transcendent truth that unites us. Unity of mind requires this transcendent truth, but it also requires humility. And this humility is characterized by deference for the needs of others. It requires us to assume the best about others. It requires us to place the well-being and the interest of others over our own, setting aside our own wants so that we might serve those as more important than ourselves. And this type of humility is hard. We're not made to want to set aside our own desires and preferences. We're made to preserve our own interests. Our first instinct in life is self-preservation. So often we treat life like the emergency instructions that we hear on a plane. In the event of depressurization of the, the, uh, of the cabin, the oxygen will fall from the top. And what are you to do then? You are to place the mask over yourself first before helping others, right? This is great pre-flight advice for an emergency, but it's actually terrible life advice. The idea that we need to look out for our own interests first. Make sure we have all the oxygen we need. Make sure we have what's going to preserve our own lives. Then and only then, if we have time or the ability or the preference to do so, then we will help others. Again, great pre-flight advice, terrible life advice. It's the exact opposite of what Christ does for us. What did he do? He actually set aside his own life for us. He humbled himself to the point of death so that you and I might know the salvation that he himself purchased. Instead of taking life to himself, he took life away from himself so that you and I might have eternal life through him. When we embrace Christ-like humility, here's what we will find happening. We'll, you'll find that you are beginning to fade to the background of the picture when you begin to place God and others at the center of life, no longer is the camera pointed at you. No longer are you the focus. Others, God and those you are serving, become the focus of your life. Tim Keller defines this type of humility as self-forgetfulness. Keller defines humility not as thinking less of ourselves, lowering our view of ourselves, because that would mean we're still all that's in the center. It's about us being good or bad. Or, we're not, it's not thinking less of ourselves. It's about thinking of, of ourselves less. Humility isn't thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. Humility isn't self-pity. It's not self-loathing. It's not denying the gifts and abilities that God has given us. Humility is simply thinking about ourselves less. We're not at the center. Pride, the opposite of humility, it always puts us in the center. Everything becomes self-referential. When we're being proud and arrogant, everything revolves around us. How does this impact me? Rather, humility is thinking about others rather than ourselves. It takes us out of the center and places the focus of our gaze on God and those around us. And here's what happens when we take the focus off of ourselves. When we take the focus off of ourselves, we begin to see that there are people around us who are in need of tenderness and mercy and sympathy 
and compassion. When we embrace humility, it clears the way for us to begin to love others with sympathy and a tender heart. And this sympathy and a tender heart, which is that second parallel, they're rooted in seeing the needs of others and being moved with compassion when we do so. Unity and humility, they they clear the way for us to take an interest in people other than ourselves, to, to listen to them, to see them, to care for them and move towards them with love. When sympathy and tenderheartedness characterize a community, the community softens. It changes who we are. It becomes a place of trust and security and empathy. When a church embraces love characterized by unity and humility and sympathy and tenderness, it becomes a place of rest and rejuvenation, a place where we can go and we can experience the love of God in and through others and extend that love to others, bring refreshing and rest to one another. And this is what God has designed the church to be. Now, here are a couple of questions for us to consider when applying this verse. When you think of others in the church, what do you think of first? Do you think of what unites you with them or what separates you from them? If it's what separates you, pause and consider these two things. Your shared faith in Christ and the fact that you will one day be with this person for eternity. Here's the reality. What we share, it is far more profound and deep and eternal than anything that could ever possibly divide us. And we will share this Christian faith, not just in this life, but forever with one another. Also ask yourself this question. How self-centered is your daily life? How self-centered is your daily life? An easy test is listening for how often do you use the first person singular pronouns. I, me, mine. I, me, mine. If we live with ourselves at the center, if the MO of our lives is first take care of me, then if I'm able, I will then take care of you, what happens is our church community becomes a transactional community. Love becomes a transaction. It's a this for that type relationship. This is what I need. This is what I want. These are my preferences. If you will give these to me, then I will give these things to you. It becomes a transaction. That's not a secure place. That's not a loving place. That's not an empathetic or compassionate place. It's a place of transaction. But when we are characterized by love and humility, by tenderness and compassion towards one another, it becomes a place of refuge and hope. So ask yourself, when you think of the church community, what comes to mind first? What the church can do for you, what you can consume, or what you can bring in love and mercy as you, ch- you, you change the gaze of your life from your own life to those that are around you. God intends for the church to be a refuge from the world, a place of love and compassion and mercy, a place that refreshes us and rejuvenates us. And it's not just so that we might know and experience this. He intends for what we know and have as a church family to then overflow in abundance to the world. What we have and what we produce, we then export to the world. We love one another, and then we love others by blessing them. And this brings us to our second point, which is bless those who revile us. Bless those who revile us. Look with me again at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, 
that you may obtain a blessing. Throughout this series, we've talked a great deal about what it looks like, the tension between being God's elect people and being exiles in the world. And so I'm not going to belabor this point of the tension that we feel as we live holy and distinct lives that we are pushed back upon by the world. This has been hammered home throughout this book. Rather, I'm going to spend some time on our response to this opposition. In this case, we are to bless those who commit evil against us and revile us. I mentioned early in this series that when we experience this pushback from the world, there are a few tendencies we have. Some of us will withdraw, we will hunker down, we will bunker ourselves in the Christian community. Some of us will venture outside of that Christian community, we'll take up the sword and we'll begin to fight to vindicate ourselves. But often we will do so in in an unchristlike way with anger and a, a strident tone. Others of us, not willing to be distant from the world, will will warm our hands by the warmth of the world, blending in so that we don't experience the persecution of the world around us. This week and next week, Peter offers us alternative responses to this. We don't have to hunker down, we don't have to take up a sword, nor do we have to blend in. This week he's going to teach us that we can respond by blessing those who revile us. And then next week, he's going to teach us that we actually have an obligation to share the hope that we have, but to do so with gentleness and respect. But this week, it's, it's blessing. So if we're going to bless those who revile us, what we need first is to be freed from our slavery to the approval of the world. If we're slaves to the approval of the world... There's no way that we can respond to their reviling with blessing because we're going to be living for their approval. We have to first be freed from our need for their approval so that we can then bless those who persecute us. And the reviling that Peter talks about throughout this letter, it's not physical persecution. It's a social persecution. Shame, loss of reputation, respectability, loss of opportunities and ostracism. The challenge we face when we are reviled is that we want to blend in or we want to retreat or we want to fight. But the one thing that we ought to do is to actually bless. But navigating this kind of mockery is hard. So whether we are teens fighting to define ourselves by winning the approval of our friends or we are adults that crave the approval of our friends, families, neighbors and coworkers, it's a difficult thing when people revile us, when they mock us, when they insult us. In order for us to be positioned to bless them when they revile us, we must first be freed from our desire to have their approval. And this freedom can only come through our understanding of Christ's love for us. It's only when we embrace God's love of us and when we recognize that the affirmation we have in Christ is unconditional, it's unending, it's vast, and it can never run out. When we recognize that we have that, And that no matter what, it can never be taken from us. And when we rest in that, we can then go into the world and experience the reviling of the world, yet not respond with reviling in return. We are made for love. We are made to love others and to be loved. It's not enough to say, don't let the world love you and don't respond to that world's affirmation as a motivation. It's not enough. We have to replace it with something. If we're not to live for the affirmation of the world, we have to have affirmation and God gives that to us through Christ. Christ gives us freedom by securing the approval that we so desperately long for. And it's in him alone that we can have this approval. And it's an approval that can never be taken from us by the world. All of the love and approval we need, we already have 
in Christ Jesus. And it's in the context of the church that we are reminded of that week in and week out. As we gather to worship, to sing songs of praise, to celebrate the sacraments together, we're reminded of God's love. And as we are filled up with God's love, we are then able to take the reviling of the world without responding in kind. That's why it's so vital that we take to heart verse 8, that it's virtually impossible for us to live the Christian life alone. If I was just to send you out there to deal with the opposition of the world without the Christian community, it would eat you alive. And yet with the Christian community, we are rejuvenated and strengthened. We have a place of rest and a place of strength from which we go out into the world that is often opposed to us. Securing Christ's love for us, we are free to experience evil without repaying, reviling without reviling in return. In fact, because of Christ's abounding love for us, we can actually respond by blessing those who persecute us. Now, this blessing of the world, it's what we talked about early in this series from Jeremiah 29, that we are to seek the good of the world around us and we are to pray for the world around us. It's, it's what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount where we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And this is countercultural. At minimum, we want to defend ourselves. At most, we want to hurt those who persecute us. But the gospel is countercultural and it says we're actually to bless those who persecute us. And it's the overflow of this reality that you and I were once enemies of God, and yet God, in His mercy through Christ, made us friends, adopted us as His children, and therefore we can go out into the world and confront the enemies of us by blessing and loving them instead of responding in kind. Now, I've been talking about this intimate connection between our ability to bless our enemies and our understanding of God's love for us. So what follows is this question, do you know God's love for you? Do you know this love? If you don't know it, you have no hope of not living for the approval of the world. Do you know God's love for you? Have you acknowledged your sin before him, your need of him? Have you turned to Christ in faith and received forgiveness, mercy, and hope. If you have, do you live in the good of this knowledge? Are you daily reminded of it? Or are you more aware of living for the love and the approval of the world around you? It's out of the abundance of this love that we are going to be able to bless those who revile us. How have you allowed the love and affirmation of God through Christ to also free you from the approval of the world? Young people, there are a number of you gathered here. You all live in a fishbowl. I'm aware of this. Where every person around you is constantly measuring you and you're constantly measuring yourself. And it's so easy to think if you make one misstep, if those around you see that they will mock you, that they will reject you, that you will be cut off. And so it becomes so easy for you to begin to live for the affirmation of the world around you. But the good news of the gospel is this. That you have a love and an affirmation from God that no friend group can ever take from you. You are already secure in God's affection for you. He loves you. He gave his son for you, and therefore you are free not to live for the affirmation and approval of the world around you. Adults, we are so often spruced up versions of our teens. We dress it up a little bit better, but the reality is so many of us live for the same approval that our teenagers do. We want our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers to like us. 
We don't want to share things that are going to embarrass us. We don't want to identify with Christ if that's somehow going to lead people to ostracize and reject us. The good news of the gospel for our teens is the same good news for us. That God's love for us is vast, that it is deep, that it is unending. And secure in that love, we can go into a world that will often be opposed to us, live holy and distinct lives, recognizing that even if the world rejects us, we can love them because we have the love of God which the world cannot touch. Lastly, and very briefly, very briefly, I want to point us to the biblical example that is alluded to in verses 10 through 12, the example of King David. Read with me now verses 10 through 12. For whoever desires love to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I think it's worthwhile to give a little context for this psalm that Peter is quoting. These verses are quoted from Psalm 34, which King David penned while he was being persecuted by Saul prior to becoming the king of Israel. So if you don't know the story of David, or if you, if you have forgotten, let me remind you a little bit. So uh, David was anointed to be the king of Israel. The only problem was there was already a king of Israel, Saul. And so David had served Saul faithfully. He had fought in his armies. He had led uh, his people into battle. And yet, when David was going to replace Saul, Saul understandably said, not going to have this. So he turns on him and he wants to kill him. So this requires David to flee from the people of God, to ultimately flee to his enemies, the Philistines. The Philistines, Goliath was a Philistine of David and Goliath fame. The Philistines are the enemies of God. David had slaughtered thousands of Philistines. And so in order to flee to them and not be killed, he had to appear in the court of the king, King Abimelech, and he had to act like he was a madman. So he was like flailing around. He was slobbering on himself, acting like he was crazy. It talks about spit being in his beard. Like he's out of control trying to show I'm, I'm actually crazy in order to protect himself. And it's in the midst of these circumstances that David pens this psalm, Psalm 34. He's living in the hope of a future blessing. He's going to be the king. But right now, he's acting like a madman in the courts of his enemies. And it's in this psalm that it points to the resources that God had given him to live in this exile. The same resources that are, are at our disposal. Now let me read for you a bit just a piece of Psalm 34. And I'll give you the context of the verses that Peter quotes. He starts with, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Think about the story I just told you. He's fleeing for his life, acting like a madman in the court of the king of his enemies. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions, they suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And then this is what is quoted in 1 Peter. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. 
David had done nothing wrong. He was a man after God's own heart who had sought to serve his God and his king. And it would have been so easy for him to repay evil with evil and reviling with reviling. But he didn't. What allowed David to trust God in the midst of these circumstances? To do as it says, to keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. To turn away from evil and do good. To seek peace and pursue it. What allowed David to do this? Psalm 34 tells us, David had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That God's ears are always open to our prayers. That the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. That he saves the crushed in spirit. David was rejected by his own king whom he had served. And he was, had had to flee for refuge in the midst of his enemies. Yet in the midst of this exile, he entrusted himself to God. He continued believing that God would deliver on his promises no matter what. And therefore, he would not retaliate with evil for evil. Rather, he blessed. David teaches us in this psalm, which Peter is quoting, that the Lord sees all things and that when we trust in him, he will hear our cries and that he will bless us as we seek to bless those who persecute us. And God hasn't left us to ourselves to do so. He's given us the church, a community of love and affection where we can be reminded of these truths and out of the abundance of that love, bless those who oppose us. So friends, my call is for us to be that kind of, of church, where we would be a place of love and security and affection. And out of the overflow of that love and affection, that we would together, as God's people, bless those who revile us and who speak evil against us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of Christ, that when we were your enemies, when we were opposed to you and running from you, you and your mercy sought us, and saved us. And you did so not when it was convenient, not because of what we could bring to the table, but at great sacrifice to yourself out of the abundance of your love. Father, out of the abundance of that love, may we be a loving, humble, sympathetic, and tender-hearted community. And may that overflow into the world who desperately needs the hope of Christ. And may we do so, may we bless them, even when they revile us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.